You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Brandon Schwartz, a law clerk for the committee. The moderators of NSLT are national security lawyers who are here in their individual capacities and not on behalf of any government agencies or companies. Thanks for tuning in. We know that you are national security law nerds, which means you're in our tribe in the nicest and most inclusive sense of that term. It also means that you probably want to go to work in the intelligence community so that you can have a front row seat to history and real-time intrigue. So this is the podcast for you. Our guests today are people who recruit CIA lawyers. No, your ears did not deceive you. They're here to tell you how to go through the process and answer some of those tough questions you want to know before you enter that application portal. (laughs) Yes, the application portal. Now, just to show you that we are a full-service podcast, We will include the link to the CIA portal in our notes to the cast. Now, Carol, it is fantastic to have you here in person, kind of a real-life celebrity. For our listeners, Carol is wearing a beige, double-breasted trench coat and a fedora, sunglasses, and she is handcuffed to a vintage Zero Halliburton briefcase. I am not serious, of course, but she is the Deputy General Counsel for Management at the CIA. Carol, thanks so much for coming in to see us. Thanks, Elisa. I am uh, resisting the urge to sing the Carmen Sandiego song, but (laughs) I have self-control. We're also joined by Rich, who's one of the heads of recruiting for CIA's Office of General Counsel, and he got here in an Aston Martin DB9. Welcome, Rich. Thank you. It's uh, fantastic to be here. Everything you said is absolutely true, except uh, it wasn't an Aston Martin. It was a Nissan Sentra Uber. Okay, so you're you're flying a little bit under the wire. These I understand. I understand. And we're joined by Craig, who's also previously served as the head of recruitment at CIA OGC. Craig's wearing a tux and drinking a martini. Well, that's pretty close. I'm actually in an orange necktie and drinking a diet coke. But it is stirred, not shaken, or is it the other way around? I forget. All right, so everyone thinks they want to work in the CIA, but the process sounds daunting. Generally speaking, what is the CIA seeking for its general counsel's office as opposed to its operational or science and technology components? So, Elisa, the Office of General Counsel is looking for outstanding attorneys that are interested in working on challenging and, in many cases, unique legal issues which directly affect national security. We aren't analysts or operations officers, but we support those officers and many others by ensuring that their work is consistent with the law. Let me put it this way. If you watch Mission Impossible and want to be like Tom Cruise, hanging from the ceiling while trying to hack into a computer, then maybe you should apply to the Directorate of Science and Technology or Directorate of Digital Innovation. Or if you watch Casino Royale, and want to be like James Bond, chasing a terrorist through a construction site in Africa, then maybe you should apply to the Directorate of Operations. But if you watch those movies and wonder, can Tom Cruise be convicted for hacking into the computer? Or can the construction company sue James Bond for wrecking its work site? Then you should definitely apply to the Office of General Counsel. We may not get asked those specific questions, but every single day our office has its share of cool and interesting issues. 
Even the, the most mundane contracts question can have an interesting twist. So you're engaging in my favorite game, which is Lawyers Ruin the Movie, <laughs> which is what my husband hates about uh, being married to a lawyer, but he's in law school, and so it will be less, it'll be more fun for him. But we definitely want to get the scary stuff out of the way first. Rich, can you tell us about possible disqualifying factors? Yeah, of course. So all of our attorneys are required to obtain a top secret clearance, which includes a background investigation and polygraph. Now, I'm sure that folks would like to know exactly what it is the CIA looks at in determining whether to give someone a clearance. However, the clearance process is really an individualized assessment based on the whole person. So I can't tell you if you do X, you'll get a clearance, but if you do Y, you won't. But generally speaking, our Office of Security is looking at things that would help them determine whether you can be trusted with classified information. We're looking for attorneys with the highest integrity. Wow. So uh, I think people should focus on their own integrity and ask themselves a serious question here because I think the CIA has come an incredible way from where it was 20 years ago. But with your permission, we'd like to get a little more granular here, perhaps to illustrate that, and address some of the questions that we've received from a number of our interns. Are there disqualifying prior jobs and are, the disquali- are there disqualifying prior relationships? Again, our Office of Security takes an individualized look at the entire person, so we can't say definitively what will or won't disqualify you. I could say that having a spouse or family member who was born in a foreign country wouldn't necessarily prevent you from getting a security clearance. In fact, Carol here was born in a different country, and she made it through the process. Generally speaking, prior employment wouldn't necessarily prevent you from getting a security clearance. Of course, if you were the head of a drug cartel or you worked for the KGB, that might be a different story. Wow. Carol, I didn't know you were that exotic, Carol. (laughs) And what about prior um, relationships? Yeah, marriage to a KGB Mm -hmm. person, maybe that would be bad. Uh, It it would. um, (laughs) I'm not going to say it's bad, per se. Uh, Depends on what you're looking for. It may make for a really long uh, security clearance process. Oh, yeah. Um, So, of course... Uh, millennials in the room. We hear a lot about drug use being a disqualifying factor and attitudes are changing as the, you know, as time goes wait, on. Wait, wait, wait. Let's not pick on the millennials. I'm we can saying. also talk about the baby boomers. Bye. I mean, I had professors in college who just leave it right there, okay? Yeah. I maintain I'm, I'm clean. Okay. No, 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 I've always been. My mom can rest at, at we're, peace. Though. We're not extracting <laughs> confessions at this point in the podcast yet, um, but definitely wanted to ask about drug use being a disqualifying factor. Is it true? And what about talented people with ADHD who might take medicine to treat their conditions or people with depression? Would they be disqualified? Well, so I'm sure it's not surprising that use of illegal narcotics can disqualify you. Um, And we'd also be concerned about the abuse of legally prescribed medications. Uh, Speaking of my generation, uh, we're the first generation that's grown up online through high school and through college. Uh, And so a lot of us want to know, are there social media posts that might result in disqualification? Yeah, thanks, Brandon. Um, That's actually a really good question. Again, we can't say if you do X, you will or you won't be disqualified. But I would generally advise any young professional, whether you're applying to work in the national security field or not, and this is something I would tell my sons, to be careful about what you post online. I'm sure your listeners have heard this all before, but it's true. 
Um, so we also um, want to know about if you are disqualified, if you're LGBTQ in the past that has been disqualifying, but has that changed? So uh, it absolutely is not a disqualifying factor. Uh, sexual orientation is relevant in obtaining a security clearance. Uh, we actually have an active agency resource group called ANGLE, which stands for the Agency's Network of Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, and Transgender Officers and Allies. Uh, in fact, Director Gina Haspel has made it uh, one of her priorities to make diversity and inclusion uh, a real priority for the agency, and she works closely with the agency's Diversity and Inclusion Office to ensure that we're actively looking to recruit people who come from underrepresented populations. Uh, for example, OGC, our office, uh, we have recruited at events like the Lavender Law Conference. And this is a great time to be talking about this because it's the middle of Pride as we're recording. So thanks for letting us know. Yeah. Um, normally, we'd uh, have a podcast break here and give out cookies and water. But Carol, Rich, and Craig are cool and ready to continue. But we still want cookies. cookies. <laughs> <laughs> Not the digital kind, but... All right, let's, uh, let's shift to the all-important uh, question. And this is actually very serious about baseline disqualifying factors. And let's face it, there have to be some. So first and foremost, the agency is looking for the best of the best, and our lawyers certainly live up to that standard. To practice in our office, you need to have graduated with a JD or equivalent degree from an ABA-accredited law school. Hopefully that's not unusual. You need to be admitted to the bar in one of the 50 states, the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, or U.S. Virgin Islands. You need to be able to obtain a top-secret clearance and pass a polygraph, and because our attorneys are based within the Washington metropolitan area, you need to be willing to re relocate to this area. And fight the traffic. Yes. <laughs> yes. Deal with the housing prices. Yes, all of the above. <laughs> Beyond that, uh, what we're really looking for are indications that attorneys have the intelligence, legal skills, maturity, professionalism, and judgment to make effective legal advisors within the CIA. You might ask yourself, what are those ind indications? Well, for junior attorneys and recent law school graduates, academic performance is extremely important to include grades, and we typically think in terms of at least above a 3.0 in law school. Uh, and then journal participation, legal research positions, internships, clerkships, and writing ability are something that we really consider as well. For attorneys who have been practicing for a while, Work experience and expertise play a more significant role. Here, we're looking for candidates who bring a track record of exceptional performance and depth of legal expertise in areas that are core to our practice. So applicants have to gather a large amount of background information to complete the clearance process. Do you have any tips that might help them marshal and plan all that information? So we actually do have a couple of tips. Uh, actually, in order to apply to our office, you have to be admitted to the bar, as, a, as I might have mentioned. And anyone who, who has filled out a bar application can tell you they're pretty detailed. A lot of that information, where you've lived, where you've worked, et cetera, is stuff you'll have to put on, a, on your security clearance application as well. So we definitely recommend keeping a copy of your bar application. So I would say that's our first tip. And then secondly, I'd also note that most state bars require applicants to pass a character and fitness application. Those state bars are looking at many of the same things our clearance process is looking at, 
For example, are you financially responsible? Are you using narcotics? Have you committed crimes, etc.? Bottom line is, if you're having a hard time passing a character and fitness review, then you'll probably have a hard time getting a clearance. And while passing a character and fitness review is no guarantee you'll get a clearance, you at least have a shot. And one other uh, trick that I would recommend is sometimes it's hard to remember the exact addresses of all the places that you lived, especially you know, during law school and undergraduate, etc., or the addresses of friends and neighbors that uh, you can use as references. So one trick that I've used is to look at the stored shipping addresses in my Amazon account and <laughs> all of the information. How utterly modern. <laughs> that is, that's a good idea. It's amazing where data is stored. <laughs> it could be helpful. But the basic threshold question is, do you hire people right out of law school? Because it's a tough market out there for young people. We absolutely do hire people straight out of law school. Every year we hire a small number of exceptionally qualified recent law school graduates to become what we term honors attorneys. Honors attorneys generally have been practicing for less than three years and are assigned to positions within our office where they'll be able to benefit from the mentoring and guidance of more senior attorneys and get a portfolio of assignments that match their growing skill sets and expertise. Beyond that, however, they're treated the same and have similar responsibilities to any other attorney in our office. It's really an amazing opportunity and an incredible amount of responsibility for someone straight out of law school. With honors applicants, we really look at academic performance, but that doesn't mean you had to have gone to Harvard or Yale. We're looking for students who have been high performers at their chosen law school and demonstrate through their academic coursework, employment, or activities the ability to think critically and write effectively, expressed an interest in public service, and have the work ethic and interpersonal skills to be strong members of our team. So can you um, talk a little bit more about what you're looking for for early career candidates uh, in terms of prior experience? How about like JAG service? All my JAGs out there say what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So most of our attorneys come to CIA after having practiced law for somewhere between three to eight years. We also have a significant number of uh, experienced lawyers who bring you know, 10 plus years of experience and real depth of expertise. Of these, what we call lateral attorneys, I would say roughly half come from private practice and the other half either come from the JAG Corps or from service elsewhere in the U.S. government. What we're looking for in those lateral applicants is some kind of subject matter expertise or transferable skill set. In many respects, Practicing law at CIA is unlike practicing anywhere else. So we want new CIA attorneys who are applying to be lateral hires to bring those transferable skill sets so that they can be productive from day one while they're learning the unique aspects of our practice. So some of the areas of practice that we're always interested in uh, include national security law, litigation, contracts and government procurement uh, and appropriations, HR and equal employment law, administrative law, and government ethics. So Rich, on top of that, I'd just add that we're particularly or especially focused on the, <laughs> intersection, <laughs> on the intersection of technology and the law in the national security space. Uh, we're extremely interested in skilled attorneys who also understand technology. 
We're, we are looking for talented attorneys with experience across the technology spectrum, including but not limited to data science and data management, digital privacy and cybersecurity, technology procurement, and intellectual property. And so assuming a new lawyer, a newer lawyer gets the job, what categories of work can they expect to handle in their first one to three years? This is where I'm going to really get in my, put on my recruiting hat and give the speech I've given every uh, interviewee at CIOGC for the last three years. So anyone who's interviewed with us in that time, they will, they will have heard this. Our office is generally broken down into six parts. Uh, the first five parts are what we call main OGC, and that includes our contract law division, litigation division, administrative law division, ethics law division, and then what we call the intelligence support division. Sixth part of our office is what we term component attorneys, and those are the attorneys who work directly with the different offices within the agency to include our mission centers and directorates and offices like the chief financial officer and office of congressional affairs. New attorneys are usually assigned to one of the five what we call main OGC divisions so that they can put to use some of those transferable skill sets that Rich talked about. For example, an attorney with litigation experience might be assigned to our litigation division where they might work with the Department of Justice during the course of a terrorism prosecution. Or an attorney with experience in government procurement might be assigned to our contract law division where they might represent the agency in a bid dispute over an agency contract. And to uh, just build on what Craig was saying, I think something that makes the Office of General Counsel at CIA unique is that some of our attorneys have the opportunity to rotate assignments historically every three to five years. That means that an attorney that starts off working, for example, on fiscal and appropriations issues in our administrative law division might, in their second assignment, serve as a legal advisor to our litigation division or to our Directorate of Science and Technology. So our JAGs will recognize this uh, format of kind of... It'll be very, very familiar to JAGs. Mm -hmm. So many lawyers come into the office with um, an area of legal expertise, and they'll continue to put that expertise to use on behalf of the agency. At the same time, there are opportunities to develop and apply new areas of legal expertise across a broad range of assignments, and because of that, it's never a boring job. Well, um, so assuming one of our listeners gets the job, and somebody listening surely will, uh, there are a few concerns about sort of life, quality of life at the CIA that I'd like to share, and I want to solicit your reactions. Um, and I'd like to quote here, it, one of the questions is, will I ever be able to talk to my family and friends about what I do? So we actually get that question a lot. And for, for the audience out there, we hire attorneys as overt as opposed to covert employees, which means that it isn't a secret that they work at CIA. So you can tell people where you work, but we strongly encourage you to, to be discreet about it. Can you tell your family and friends the particulars about what you're working on? Generally speaking, no, uh, because it's likely very classified. So will I be able to go to places with no cell service? If I want to take advantage of our national parks and go hiking, uh, will I be able to do that? Well, the answer to your first question is yes. Despite what you've seen on Homeland or Jack Ryan, cell phones aren't allowed inside any agency facilities. As such, if you're hired, you'll have no cell service anytime you're in the office. But in response to your real question, whether our attorneys get to travel to interesting and remote parts of the world, the answer to that question is often yes. In fact, the work done by our attorneys sometimes requires or benefits from their getting out into the field. Even with occasional travel to various parts of the world, there are opportunities for work-life balance at CIA that are hard to find in the law firm world. 
The really nice thing about our job is that work doesn't come home with you. Since most of our work is classified, it can't come home with you. So for all those attorneys listening out there that are clutching their phones, waiting for that final client email of the day, imagine a world where that doesn't happen. When you log off of your computer at the end of the day, or better yet, at the end of the week, the work stays right there in the office. Okay, here's another question, not mine personally, <laughs> but people are asking, can they still meet somebody online, uh, go use an online dating app? Uh, of course you can, just don't mention the agency and avoid doing it at work. The name of the game in all situations like this is discretion. All right, well, what have we left out? What, uh, what more uh, would you like our listeners to know about the CIA and the reasons to pursue a career there? So Yvette, every day when I look at the front page of the newspaper, I will usually see two or three stories, whether it's about terrorism, regional conflicts, cyber threats, drug trafficking, or something else, that I know attorneys in our office are being asked to provide legal guidance on. I don't know that there are many other legal offices within the U.S. government that can say that. If you're passionate about national security issues, there's no better place to work. You know, what really strikes me is that it's not just the big legal questions concerning global events that Carol referred to, which makes our office so interesting. I think what makes us different from almost any other office is that no matter what the legal issue is, there's always a little twist that comes from being at the agency. Even the most straightforward question about employee benefits, for example, become much more interesting and complicated when you consider that many of our employees can't acknowledge that they even work for the CIA. How do you handle that? How do you comply with the law in that case? There's never a dull moment. So I've had friends from law school uh, who went off to work in various parts of the legal profession and have admitted to me that sometimes they catch themselves wondering, what's the point of it all? I've worked at CIA for a decade, and honestly, I've never had those kind of doubts. Every day, I get to go to work knowing that my one and only job is to do the right thing. And it might sound corny, but I still get inspired every time I walk through our main lobby and see the memorial stars on the wall and the seal on the marble floor. I still get amazed by how incredible some of the issues that I get to work on are. So clearly, I love what I do. And I suspect that many of the people listening uh, would probably feel the same way, so I hope that they'll apply to our office. I'm sure many of them will, actually. But um, while we do not follow our standard practice of hyperlinking the bios to our guests for this podcast, what we're going to do is hyperlink the application portal, just to remind our listeners. Carol, Rich, and Craig, thank you so much for coming in this afternoon. Um, and may you have lots of wonderful young lawyers and mid-career lawyers joining you in the future to serve uh, the very important mission of the agency, which if you're curious about, by the way, folks, is hyperlinked. Uh, we're going to put that in as well so you can look at the original authorities emanating originally from the National Security Act of 1947. Thank you so much for having us. If people listening are interested in joining our office, which I'm, I'm really hoping they are, uh, they, they can also apply through USA Jobs or through our website at CIA.gov. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. See you next time. Right. You can find more links to articles on the topics we cover on NSLT on our website, as well as books that can help you grow your understanding of national security law. And you can drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org or on Twitter at ABA NatSec. We welcome your feedback. 
Hey, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.